0: Search me, God, know my heart, test me, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. So, um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Andrea. I'm on. St- oh, thank you. It's just my name. Um, I'm on staff here at Christ City Church, and um, in full disclosure. I currently hold the record for the longest sermon ever preached at Christ City Church. (laughs) I broke that record this summer, the first and only time I've ever preached here. Um, So just be assured, I do not plan on doing that today. Um, There is not a countdown clock as I had anticipated, so we're going to see how this goes. So if I end the sermon at like a really weird point today, like it's not finished, it's probably because it isn't finished and I like my job and would like not to get fired. (laughs) So um, yeah, so I'm excited. I'm excited to be here with you again this morning. Um, So we're in the fourth week of a series on Psalms that we've been calling Songs of, of the Heart. And Psalms, so just an overview. Psalms is a five book collection of creative expressions. So it's songs, poems, Um, community liturgies that speak to the human experience with God and the world. And it's crazy because um, this collection was written and curated over centuries, like five centuries of human experience of walking with God. And I love the Psalms um, because they're so refreshingly human. Um, When I read them, I'm encouraged to actually be present in everything that's happening in my life, to actually feel it to live it, to feel my emotions, and also have this conscious recognition of God's presence and activity in the world. So Walter Brueggemann's written a lot of books about Psalms, um, and he says, I like how he explains this, he says that the Psalms provide space for full linguistic freedom in which nothing is censored or precluded. Um, And so when when we have these honest human expressions, they don't allow us to have what Brueggemann calls a domesticated spirituality. It's not like we can hide things. So when we read them, we have to face the reality of being human alongside the reality of God's activity. And so the Psalms were actually composed a long time before Jesus, before the time of Jesus. But even today, I think they help us to understand this tension that we live in of God's kingdom, which is here, but also not here yet. So we live in this like dual reality there's the reality of the world, that things are not as they should be. I think that we can all agree to that. And, but there's also this reality of God's nearness and God's movement in the world. And so in week one of this series, um, we discussed Psalm 146 and the need for justice and the righting of wrongs, and Nina Balsameda she just she came up here and bore this beautiful witness to the dual realities we live in. Um, just the brokenness of the families that she works with um, and then the beautiful redemption of, of their restoration. And then the week after that, um, Justin Fung preached on Psalm 13 and he talked about the importance of the human processes of lament and grief, that things are not how they should be and we actually don't need to pretend like they are But even still, that psalm ends, I will trust in your unfailing love and I will sing to the Lord because he's good to me. So there's brokenness and then there's beauty. And then last week, um, Watson and Daniel Harris preached on Psalm 23, which talks about walking through, as I walk through the darkest valley, but then also ends with, surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. So there's brokenness and then there's beauty. And so this week, we're gonna talk about this dual reality the brokenness we face as we recognize things aren't how they should be and the beauty of God's restoration. But we're going to talk about it in the context of actually ourselves and how it speaks to our identity and and who we are and who we um, envision ourselves to be. And so we're going to look at Psalm 139, um, which is kind of this, when you walk through the psalm, it it kind of walks through this examination process of both ourselves and God and sort of how those things kind of go together. And so I originally chose this psalm um, Very spiritually, um, not at all. As a kid, as a kid, I I was a little kid and I um, had like a, you know, a kid's adventure Bible. And I was looking through the Psalms and I, for some reason, Psalm 139 was like a thing to me. And I was like, I like this Psalm, said seven-year-old me. I'm going to make this my life Psalm. I'm going to memorize it and this is going to be my Psalm. Um, I actually never did that. Um, I never did memorize it, but the number actually did stick with me um, randomly enough, and it would come, Psalm 139 would just kind of come randomly to me over the years, and so when um, I was asked which psalm I would like to preach on, um, it literally just popped out of my mouth, like it was like there, I was, I was like Psalm 139! Um, that's, a, that's my super spiritual way of choosing what I preached on today. <laughs> uh, but f- what's really funny about that is I said it really randomly, and then after that, um, even before I had started um, preparing for the sermon, it started popping up. Like it popped up in more than one of the books I was reading for school, which like completely random. Um, I'm not even in an Old Testament class. I'm in a New Testament class, but still like Psalm 139 specifically popped up. Um, it popped up in my devotion. It was, it was strange. So it seems that as, as though the spirit was probably at work there, um, which is kind of unfortunate because um, this, this sermon today and the psalm, we're looking at self-examination, which I am horrible at. Um, I think it's so difficult to be self-knowing because we are adrenaline addicts. I know that I am. So I was reading this article this week about the physical effects of adrenaline and how we can actually be addicted to the rush of adrenaline without realizing it. And actually, not even that, we can actually come to depend on the adrenaline high to function, like to normally function. So we're always busy, we're always putting out fires, we're always hustling, I am so like that. And when it comes to self-examination then and self-knowing, we're either driven by perfectionism in which we critique everything about ourselves and attempt, attempt to fix everything, every flaw that we decipher in our lives, or we just avoid everything by self-medicating with whatever. So more work, you just pile it on yourself, you binge Netflix, um, you drink too much wine, or like Candy Crush, I mean, there are just lots of ways where we self-medicate. I certainly in the latter, um, I don't like looking at myself, I wanna avoid it. And so for me, what I'm realizing is this is is such an issue um, for us as a culture, and it absolutely affects our spiritual life too. I think we think it just affects like our work-life balance, but it actually goes deeper than that. Um, I'm really good at constructing an image of myself that's super idealized and convincing myself that I'm already like that. Um, like even in dumb stuff, like um, like oh these pants don't fit. Like the button won't button. Um, Obviously these pants shrunk because I'm obviously the same size I was when I was like 15. Like that's because I've constructed this idealized version of myself. That's obviously true. It's the pants fault and not my fault. Um, but what happens there, and I know that's kind of funny, but I, I lose sight of reality. We lose sight of reality of, of who I actually am and then therefore who God is. So I much prefer being in control of my own image. And even if I'm not actually in control, I'm at least in control of how I think that you view me. Um, And I don't like to give that up. So um, Brene Brown is a research professor who studies vulnerability and emotional health. You maybe have heard of her. Um, And on this topic, she writes that we cannot trade our authenticity for safety. She says that owning our story can be hard but not nearly as difficult as spending our lives running from it. And so, as we're looking at Psalm 139 today, um, this psalm gives us a framework in which we can know and tell the truth about who we are to ourselves because of what we know about God. So, today we're going to walk through the psalmist process in in Psalm 139 of self-examination together in order to gain a better understanding of how we do this. So, um, we're going to look... At um at the first part of the psalm. So the, the first thing that the psalm the psalmist recognizes is that um, he's known and loved by God. And I really thank you. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. you, really thank you. Um, that's really nice, thank you. I need that. Um, so I really wanted to steal a line from the Lion King and call this point Remember Who You Are. Um, <laughs> but I didn't, because it doesn't super fit. <laughs> And because I don't, <laughs> I couldn't say it like James Old Jones, and I feel like that would be really disappointing. Um, but if you remember, if you have s- if you have seen The Lion King, which I'm gonna go ahead and assume that most of us have seen it, um, so I'm not so like no spoiler alerts here. Um, so in this scene specifically, Simba is has grown up. He's been denying and running from his identity as the true king. And he's, he's just pursuing anonymity. He just wants to be a nobody. He doesn't wanna have to live into this identity. So he goes through this journey that eventually leads him to this encounter with the spirit of his father Mufasa. I'm gonna say some words from the movie and I'm not gonna sound like Mufasa, but just bear with me. So in this scene, he encounters him. He, it's like the one where Mufasa's walking through the clouds and Mufasa says, Simba, you have forgotten me. And Simba says, no, how could I? And Mufasa goes, You've forgotten who you are, and so you have forgotten me. And not to over-spiritualize The Lion King, um, <laughs> though it's a very good movie, um, this is it, like this is what we struggle with. So we've forgotten who we really are, and so we've forgotten the one in whose image we're made, the creator who has made us and knows and loves us. Um, I think that we live, the culture we live today, is like a spin culture. So we're just surrounded by lies everywhere. And even if they're not full lies, they're at best half-truths, which is basically still a lie. Um, so I, we're lied to all the time by advertisements, um, what, what we should look like, what the image of success actually is. Um, we lie to one another, even if we have good intentions. That's that, that curated social media life. That's what that is. Um, or like we're just super competitive with each other because we think everything is a zero-sum game, and if there's there's no room for both of us, so we we just lie to each other. Whether we overflatter or we um, knock down a few pegs when it's unnecessary, and I think if we're being honest, we lie to ourselves. Um, I think we don't know how to tell the truth to ourselves anymore, even about who we really are. And if I'm being really honest, um, most of the time I actually don't want to know the truth. Um, I don't like sitting still because then I can't spin my way into a better idea of who I actually am, um, even if it's not completely true. And I don't want to do anything that's hard. So society has spun the slide to us that happiness and comfort are the ultimate values, and if I'm experiencing something hard that's not like happy and rainbows all the time, then it must not be good. And So I think we've become much more worried about appearances than actual truth. We like to hide, we like to curate, we go to great lengths to avoid any kind of rejection. Um, But we do this because we've become disoriented. So as we look at the Psalm, Psalm 139 reminds us to quit spinning and recognize the goodness of who we are as created beings. So let's look at verse one. It says, "'Lord, you have examined my heart "'and you know everything about me. "'You know when I sit down, when I stand up, You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel, when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say before I say it, Lord. And in verse 13, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and you knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book and every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. So God the creator has examined us and knows who we are. God sees everything we have done and will do. And the, and the kicker part is he still loves. God still loves. He knows everything there is to know and still loves. So the psalm continues, How precious are your thoughts about me, God. They cannot be outnumbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand, and when I wake up, you're still with me. Another translation of those verses, um, the New English translation, says it like this. How difficult it is for me to fathom your thoughts about me, God. How vast is their sum total. If I try to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And even if I finish counting them, I would still have to contend with you. So not only does God the creator know us deeply, God's thoughts about who we are cannot be counted. So we can take respite in recognizing that God knows us. We can look at truths within because God already knows them. They are not hidden. God knows the parts of us that even we struggle to understand ourselves. God already knows. God knows us when we try to pursue anonymity from him or from other people. We can't pursue anonymity with God. That you can't do that. Willing or unwilling to expose what's inside and who you are, God already knows. And the thing is, this really matters to what we think about ourselves and what we know about our identity. God fully knows and God fully loves. And we've used this quote before in a previous series about relational health. It's a quote by Tim Keller and he says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is what we need more than anything because it liberates us from pretense humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. So being known and loved prevents us from putting up false fronts or thinking of ourselves too highly. Ultimately, being known and loved gives us a courage in a way that nothing else can to face all the hard stuff with grace and even gratitude, which is crazy. So when I preach, when I stand up here and preach the two times that I've done it, I'm preaching to you, I also know that I'm preaching um, to a person who I've been married to for 10 years. So Drew's knowledge of me definitely bolsters me, makes me braver to do stuff that I'm scared to do, Um, but it also keeps me from standing up here and saying something I don't actually believe or don't actually practice, or to present a false image of myself, which I would love to do. I would just love for you guys to think that I'm like a perfect person who still fits in my 15-year-old pants. Um, to be loved by Drew for more than ten years means that he's decided to love me even after seeing inevitably the very worst that I have to offer. Um, but being so so being known and loved by him, especially over that amount of time, it definitely affects what I think about myself and who I am for the better. So. And you don't have to be married to understand what I'm saying. Who are the people that you let in to your life? Think about them. The the people that are your people that truly know stuff about you, like blackmail level, and still love you. And how does that influence your your identity? How does that increase your confidence? Um, The crazy thing about that, though, is we can still hide things from people. I can hide stuff from Drew. Um, If I wanted to, I could present a different person and keep things inside and he wouldn't know that. But I can't hide anything from God. So whether I want it or not, God knows everything about me and yet still loves me and declares me wonderfully made. So how much more should that define me? That's how we're able to see ourselves in truth. So as we've As we've looked at this first part of the psalm, we recognize we can only understand our true selves in the context of God's knowledge and love of us. So the next section of the psalm speaks to self-knowing in light of the knowledge that God is always near. So a big chunk of this psalm um, literally just talks about all the places we can go, the physical places, and still be in God's presence. So if you look at verses 7 through 10. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you're there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. And I think the psalmist is saying that there there is no physical place we can go where God is not. So if I go to the highest place imaginable, God is there. If I am buried under the ground, God is there. If I ride the wings in the morning, or in other words, if I could travel at the speed of light, like on the sun, I cannot escape God's presence. God sees all, God knows all, God is everywhere. And God is present even in the things that are unseen and the places that are not physical. If we move beyond physical location, there's still nowhere that we can go where God is not. In verse 5, the psalmist says, you go before me and you follow me. Or as another translation says, you hem me in. Front and back, God is, in the pres- is present in the past and God is present in the future. God saw us before we were born and God is in every day of our lives. So we, there's nowhere even in our lives as we live it that we can go where God is not. God's presence too even extends into the darkness and light of our lives. So in verse 11, the psalmist says, I could ask the darkness to hide me, the light around me to become night, but even in the darkness I can't hide from you. To you the night shines as bright as day, darkness and light are the same to you. So I think these obviously these verses speak to God's ability to see us, whether it's light or dark, where we are. But I think it also speaks to to when it's light or dark in our hearts. When we're filled with hope and joy, we're filled to the brim, God's there. And when we despair and when we fail, when we are detached from everything, when we lament, God is there. In the heights of our hearts and in the depths of our hearts, God is there. And I think that we're scared to bring our worst parts to God, which is silly because I think that we can sit here and acknowledge that God already knows them, all the worst things, but we are, we're scared. And I think we wonder where God is in the darkness of the world. But this is the beauty of the Psalm in its humanness. It's so aware that even in darkness, I can't hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. God is present in our darkness, which is the darkness of our hearts and the darkness of the world, even if we forget or don't acknowledge that God is present. And that's what our hope is built on. Our hope is built on God's presence in the light and darkness and ultimately that God's light always infiltrates our darkness. So um, an early 20th century Jewish philosopher wrote this poem about God's presence, which I think just really sums up this section of the psalm. It says, Where I wonder, you. Where I ponder, you. Only you you again, always you, 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 when I am gladdened, you, when I am saddened, you, only you, you again, always you, 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 sky is you, earth is you, you above, you below, in every trend, at every end, only you, you again, always you, 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 you. So it's It's not God's presence that comes and goes, it's our recognition of God's presence. It's like when my kids were younger and we'd play hide and seek, and I would like close my eyes to count. And when I'd open them, like Rowan would be standing there literally like right next to me where she was like this. Um, And she'd think that she was hiding. Um, The reality is obviously I could see her (laughs) even if she thought that I couldn't. But this, this is what it is, right? God knows us. God is with us even when we are covering our faces. We think that we're hiding and we are not. Um, and so, so since we're loved and known by God and always in God's presence, and we're recognizing that, this, this brings us to our own responsibility and knowing the truth about who we are. And so as we move into um, the last section of this psalm, the last verses are the psalmist um, inviting God into his self-examination process, inviting God in. So when I say self-examination, I'm not, I'm not referring to like that's like a, like a spiraling, shame-inducing inventory of things that are wrong about you. That's not what I mean by self-examination. Um, what I mean is a process in which we're honest with ourselves about what is true about us. So when I'm honest with myself about what is true about me, And in the busyness of life, practicing something like self-examination is like a reset. It's it's us reorienting ourselves to the truth. And it's giving ourselves the opportunity to be honest about who we are and in turn be open to transformation. So because like, as I was saying before, we live in a society that values production above most other things. And so practices like contemplation or self-reflection seem really dumb because they're slow, they're intentional, and they're best done in stillness and silence. And that it, seems, it can seem really counterintuitive and wasteful to spend any time not hustling all the time. And this has trickled into our spiritual lives too. So I grew up um, in a church tradition that emphasized inner transformation as the true and ultimate mark of being a Christian. And I think at times that discounted the gospel's call to act. Now, I love, I love this community. I love us. I love how committed we are to investing in our neighborhood, to issues of justice, both locally and globally. And, and the thing is, what I love so much about us is that we don't just talk about them. We actually do stuff about it. We act. The thing about it, though, is I think that there's still a temptation that we can get caught up in a spiritual hustle. Um, I think that there's this false dichotomy between being and doing, like we can only focus on one. And if we're doing one, we can't do the other and vice versa. But in truth though, I think when we look at it, the the two, those two things work together in a cycle cyclically in this rhythm that emphasizes both personal formation and mission. So Ruth Haley Barton explains it like this, which I think was really helpful to me. As we do the will of God, we're confronted even more profoundly with our need for deeper levels of spiritual transformation so we can continue discerning the will of God. So let's look at this last section of the psalm. It starts with um, an honest frustration of what the psalmist feels is God's lack of action towards people he thinks are clearly in the wrong. It says... God, if only you would destroy the wicked. Get out of my life. You murder as they blaspheme me. Your enemies misuse my name. Lord, shouldn't I hate those who hate you? Shouldn't I despise those who oppose you? Yes, I hate them with total hatred for your enemies are my enemies. And I think, again, this psalm is so human. It's like, God, look what I'm facing. I'm trying to oppose what you oppose. There are people who are doing things in your name that are not of you. The psalmist is bringing this True yearning for justice, and it's mixed with a little bit of yearning for retaliation. For things to be right for him. And that's real. Like, that's real talk. The knowledge of God's intimacy with who we are and God's presence allows us to bring mixed motives when we pray. We can bring what is real without fear of abandonment. So I can bring to God my anger towards my children, the sadness I feel over friends and family who are going through really tough times or struggling. I can bring to God my fear about the current trajectory of our country. I can bring my frustration about the failures of the church both here and just globally. God already knows those things. But in this, though, the goal of bringing these things to God is not for us to just feel justified or feel right, which does feel very good, but the goal is for us to be, as Brueggemann writes, very sure of God. It's for us to be transformed as we invite God into our self-knowing. And so right after the psalmist says that, he he says right away, he says, search me, God, know my heart, test me, know my anxious thoughts, point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. And so the psalmist, I think, recognizes his own capacity to speak empty words and then attach God's name to them to make his enemies God's enemies. That's not always true. And I I recognize that in myself. I see how tempted I am to lie to myself about whose side I'm actually on. And this is why we invite God into our self-examination. God already knows what we're bringing. God is present, and God is the one who transforms us. And so as we look at kind of what, as I thought about what this means practically um, in application, um, there's a prayer practice that I have um, had to, this sounds weird. I've, in one of my classes, I have to do this prayer practice every day uh, for a grade, which seems really weird. Um, I'm doing this prayer practice, and um, so I'm gonna make you do it too. <laughs> You can just expect that of me when I preach. Whatever I'm going through, you're going to have to go through it, too. Um, so I want to I walk through um, a specific prayer practice of self-examination um, that I hope that maybe we'll do together this week. So St. Ignatius of Loyola was a Spanish priest in the 1500s, and he began a practice that's known as the prayer of examine, or the daily examine. And it's actually really similar to the way Psalm 139 walks through self-examination. So... What I'd like for us to do as a church this morning is to kind of go over what, what this practice looks like and then try this week to actually make some space in our rhythms um, to, to do this practice and maybe share our experiences with each other. So um, Justin and Melissa are gonna hand out um, a paper with this on it that I was gonna have in your seats but didn't have ready. So thanks Justin and Melissa so much. So you can actually find a few variations of of what this practice looks like. People practice it differently. Um, Justin Fung wrote a simplified version of of the examine for um, when he wrote Learning to Live. And so that's outlined in the card on the sheet. So the practice takes about 15 minutes-ish, longer or shorter is okay with you. Um, Ignatius used to do this twice a day. Some people use this as a midday exercise to kind of center them again in the middle of the day. Some people do it at night. Some people do it twice, three times a day. Totally up to you. Um, It can be really helpful to journal through this process every day. So you start by giving yourself a few minutes to quiet your mind, invite the Holy Spirit to speak, and then there are three prompts to walk through reflection of yourself with God. So just really quickly, we'll just go through those. So the first prompt is gratitude. You just recall that you've been in the presence of God, that you're still in the presence of God, as we have recognized today. In your mind, you just consider your day. You acknowledge the things that you're thankful for. So I think we have a tendency to pray out of guilt a lot of the time, like, God, I'm sorry for this, I'm sorry for this. Um, But for this prayer, we're trying to come from a posture of gratefulness. So thank God for what's right, thank God for the work that you can see that is of God and thank God for God's presence. The second prompt is um, awareness of God. So you spend a few minutes cultivating gratitude, putting yourself in a posture of gratitude and and then you move to the awareness of God. So you go back over the day again and this time you look for the presence of God in your life in that time that you're looking over. So did God help you through a difficult situation? Did God present you with an opportunity to show love in a conversation with a coworker or to a family member? Where did you see God at work today? Ask the spirit to help you recognize God's presence in your day. And then um, that probably takes the most amount of time, I think. And then the third prompt is confession. So you reflect on your day one more time. And this time, you're honest, you need to be honest about your reactions through the day. So the ways that you didn't love God fully, the ways you didn't love your neighbor or did, the ways that you did something um, that, that was in line with God's character or when you didn't. And so this is a, it's a really simple exercise. It actually sounds, to me, I was kind of like, why do I have to do this every day? This sounds really elementary, um, but as I've done it for the past six weeks, Most days, don't tell my professor. The point, I'm I'm seeing that the point of doing this is that by looking back and reviewing my day through the lens of my God identity, I'm also able to look forward. This is like course correction. We open ourselves to the spirit. We recognize the connection of self-awareness in the process of becoming more like Jesus and therefore then we can understand the way our true identity should should inform how we live. So, we're gonna try it this week. When you go to small group, they're gonna talk about it, I think, they're gonna talk about it. Yeah, they're gonna talk about it. Um, They're gonna talk about it. I would just encourage you, I think there's something powerful about doing um, practices as a church. I think that that's a powerful thing. Um, if this is something that becomes a part of your daily rhythm, that would be wonderful. Um, but this week, I want us to make an effort to try this. And dude, it's hard. I, I won't lie to you. I, sometimes it is so difficult for me to um, even just think about taking 15 minutes where I'm sitting still and being quiet. Um, I, it, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard for me. So I want us to try it this week. Um, In a letter to the Thessalonians, Paul instructs them to pray always. Um, Henry Nouwen, actually, in a book, he explains that the Greek word for pray always is literally translated as come to rest. And we're not called to navigate the world or even our inner selves by, by ourselves. God desires for us to grow in our awareness of the Spirit's presence, and in turn, be able to see ourselves more accurately in the light of God's truth. So when we're ashamed and we're tempted to hide, God is there, and when we experience darkness, we let the light of God infiltrate that darkness in our lives. In Matthew 11, Jesus invites us into an identity of rest. This is the message version, but this is is from Jesus. Are you tired? Are you worn out? burned out on religion. Come to me, get away with me, you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, you'll learn to live freely and lightly. And so my challenge to us this week, as we close out, is to rest in the truth of who we are because of who God is. Sounds really simple, it's really tough. But to do that and to allow that identity to guide our steps as individuals and as a church. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for your presence, for your ever, ever standing, always around presence. Um, I do forget that, God. We do forget that. But I thank you that um, you are a God who can actually handle all of our stuff, that we don't have to curate the things that we show to you. God, and I, I thank you that, um, that what you desire for us is, is rest and truth, and that you provide both of those things. It's not like you're, you're asking us to do something that you're not going to give us. So thank you for the gift of rest, thank you for the gift of truth. Thank you for making us the way that we are. I pray God that as we continue to try to to learn more about who you are, learn more about ourselves, that you will enable us to to be honest with ourselves and then to steward the things that you've given and steward our stories um, in an effort to further your kingdom. So God, I pray this morning that even now you would be reminding us of who we are because of who you are in your goodness and your patience with us um, and in your steadfast love for us. We love you and we thank you. Amen.